there's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends, but who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Michael Manos. Dr. Manos is a psychologist at Cleveland Clinic's Children's Hospital, and we'll be talking about ADHD. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Nada. Thank you for having me. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. Let's talk about ADHD. Let's just talk about definition. What is ADHD? There's a formal definition, and the formal definition that it is a biological disorder, mm -hmm. and it's associated with particular symptoms and a particular network in the brain, um, and the core symptoms are inattention, distractibility, and hyperactive impulsive behavior. That is a typically useless definition for most people. And uh, the way uh, it has been defined is that ADHD is like having a Ferrari engine for a brain, but with bicycle brakes. Um, it's, it's actually somewhat of a misnomer to call it an attention deficit, because what it actually is is attention to too much. The thing is that the brain is always active. It's always putting its attention on something. And the difficulty comes in when the person can't select the object to put attention on and keep it there. Because the attention wants to go where it wants to go. Sure, sure. So it's, you're saying it's not trouble paying attention. It's paying attention to too many things at once. Yes, okay. exactly. That's well said. Okay. So how common is it nowadays in the USA? That is a question that keeps changing, but the current prevalence data in the United States from the Centers for Disease Control is 11%. Wow. Worldwide pre prevalence is 7.2%, which is huge. Mm -hmm. When you consider that evolutionary biologists say that natural selection selects for a particular condition if it's 1% of the population. This is very, very high. Yeah, that is very high. So is it considered a learning disability? No. no. Uh, learning disabilities are associated with difficulty in manipulating or managing the symbols of language. Mm -hmm. So there are reading disabilities, there are math disabilities, we call dyslexia or dyscalculia. Um, ADHD is a matter of placing attention to sustain attention for task completion. Associated with doing that, the way you do that is to use executive functions. Now, most of us, especially those of us who um, have um, work that requires it, and it's especially needed in school, we have to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. So in an adult example, for example, if it's, if it's 2014 and you have your taxes due and it's April 14th and taxes are due the next day and it's a beautiful day outside and you haven't done your taxes, you have to regulate yourself to sit down and get your taxes done, right. rather than go outside and enjoy the day. Right. We use executive functions for, to do that. Okay. The self-regulation that is available to most neurotypical individuals, not available to an individual with ADHD. The individual with ADHD tends to live a different sort of life. They're attracted to the world around them. Using language, which is how most of us get things done. It's how I got here to talk with you. It's how sure. you got here originally. Sure. It's how our administrative assistants manage people. We use language. Language to manage personal behavior in a person with ADHD is not very powerful. Mm. So we might go to the store and we might have in mind, I have to get milk, eggs, and cheese. Mm. And you get to the store, you buy what you buy, 
and you walk out and you have bread and you have Havarti cheese and you have um, uh, one of the broiled chickens that are, and you walk out with five things and not one of them is one of the things that you said you were going to get. So you see, language is not as particularly potent. That's why you don't treat ADHD by counseling. Counseling is useless. I mean, <clears throat> I know how to say brilliant things. I can have golden words come out of my mouth when I'm talking to a child. And by the time the child ends the session and walks out the door of the hospital at the rehab hospital, walks through the green awning, whatever I say is gone. It's why um, parents in managing children with ADHD, they do all this talking. And a child does something, like spills the milk. The child gives a five-minute lecture on how you're supposed to hold the glass with two hands and you're supposed to, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And the next day, the child's sitting down and spills the milk again. Yeah. Do you get the idea? Right. Okay. Right. So language is not, is not uh, the appropriate way to communicate with a child with ADHD. Well, appropriate is not, I'll use a different word. It's not the effective way of Most making effective. a difference for ADHD. Okay. I give lectures at a lot of places, and I, and I went out to Stanford and gave a presentation there, and I told him at the very beginning, look, I'm an expert in ADHD. By the time this conversation is over, in the hour later, after we're all finished, I will know exactly who in this room is ADHD. Wow. Come up and talk to me afterwards. Wow. For example, um, you can often tell people who have ADHD, not because of overt symptoms, mm -hmm. but because they seem just to notice everything. Mm -hmm. um, there are some adult jobs, for example, that are uh, perfect for the ADHD brain. Um, but when you have ADHD, your attention is on the world around you. Mm -hmm. Your attention is drawn to any change in the world around you. And if the world around you is not particularly fascinating or interesting or attention-getting, guess what? The brain generates thoughts mm -hmm. and conditions. It can ruminate on things that happened years ago. The brain will always be attending to something. That's the difficulty of ADHD. That's the nature of it. Now, when you consider adult positions, adult jobs, consider a policeman. What does a policeman have to do? What's good? A policeman goes to a crime scene. What does he have to do or she have to do? To notice everything. Mm -hmm. Analyze. Um, there are certain uh, professions. David Neeleman, for example, was the former CEO of JetBlue. Now, those people who follow airlines and stocks, JetBlue was the most successful airlines for um, a long time. I think now it's second to Alaskan Air. But you know what he said? He said, I wanted to make the airlines suitable for me. I want things fast, simple, and efficient. Mm -hmm. He created it that way and created a very successful airline. In fact... Um, you might be too young to remember when we used to use paper tickets for flying the airplane. So David Neeleman used to use paper tickets. What do you think happened to his paper ticket, given that he's ADHD? Lost it. He lost it, of course. So he was the one who invented the electronic ticket. Mm, I see. Very interesting. So what is the difference between ADHD and ADD? Because I, I heard that... Uh, a lot too. ADD is that similar to ADHD, or is it being used anymore? In the professional field, it's all called ADHD. Okay. There are three types of ADHD. Um, there's what's called ADHD predominantly inattentive mm -hmm. presentation. Um, and to diagnose ADHD, there are nine symptoms associated with inattention mm -hmm. and nine symptoms associated with hyperactive impulsive behavior. An adult has to have at least five in either one or both of those categories. A child needs to have at least six. Mm. Okay. So um, it's not enough, however, just to show those symptoms because everybody shows those symptoms right. from time to time. Right. People who don't get enough sleep are often forgetful. 
people who are depressed or anxious and have actual anxiety depressive disorders um, often forget things or often overlook something or often seem scattered. Um, there are certain conditions. So let's say you have a child who is inattentive, shows eight of nine symptoms for inattention. Mm -hmm. There have to be certain conditions there. <clears throat> First of all, they have to have been there for a long time. They have to happen a lot, so much so that it's intrusive. Mm -hmm. Usually the measure that we use for intrusiveness is that the child's behavior is compromised at home and in school. Mm -hmm. In an adult, you might consider home and work. You can consider relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I had a truly remarkable guy, um, married, and uh, inattentive type ADHD. He told his wife, Honey, I'm going to accept your request and I'm going to put up paneling in the basement just like you've asked me for the past two years. He went out and he bought the paneling on a Saturday, put it in the basement, and another year went by. Um, finally, um, after all of his excuses and all of the disruption that his wife had and all of his, her upset, when are you going to do it, all of his promises that he ultimately broke, he called up a friend of his, and he said, can you come on over? I know you know how to put up paneling. Will you come over and do it? I'm going to get a keg of beer. You and I are going to go put up the paneling in the basement, and I'll pay you for it. Mm -hmm. He had it done in four days mm -hmm. after virtually three years of not keeping his promise to his wife. So what changed besides well, the beer? what do you think what changed? <laughs> the, um, the experience, maybe? The alcohol? The, the friend? No, <laughs> Actually, got nothing to do with the alcohol. <laughs> no, you it, that up. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the alcohol. It had to do with the context within which he did it. Mm -hmm. To do it himself is a characteristic of ADHD that is difficult. People with ADHD tend to have significant difficulty self-directing, mm -hmm. saying, "I am going to write that paper," or "I am going to clean that room." Right, right. They right. say it to themselves. What's the consequence? They can forever say, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Right. And there's no serious consequence. Okay. But if you change the context of the situation and make the person obligated to another person who's going to come over and who's there to complete the task, right. then things change completely. That's where the real mistake is. I shouldn't call it a mistake, actually. That's where the real ineffectiveness is in what most people think they're supposed to do with ADHD. Right, right. If you have ADHD, I'll sit and talk with you and help you through it. Mm -hmm. It's utter nonsense. If you have ADHD, what I'm going to do is actually have you alter your circumstances. Mm -hmm. If you have difficulty studying, then go join a study group. Mm -hmm. If you have difficulty remembering written material, then um, have somebody read to you or well. use books on tape or the like. It's to do things differently is the way you treat ADHD. Okay. Now, you asked me a question a long time ago about what's the difference between ADD and ADHD. Mm -hmm. Nobody professionally uses the term ADD. Okay. It's all ADHD. The three types are inattentive type, hyperactive, impulsive type, and combined type, which is both of those things. Okay. Okay. All the above. So what you were saying earlier, right before you answered this, is it the outside factors or environment that we're changing to help the person with ADHD? Again, that's well said. You don't treat ADHD in the therapist's office. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's an illusion that I don't know how it got propagated, but yeah, yeah. you treat it at the point of contact. Okay. So, for example, our summer treatment program at Cleveland Clinic, it is the most advanced, sophisticated behavioral program for ADHD in the world. Oh, please explain. There's one in Japan. There's five in this country of the research type that we use. Now, by the way, I'm not self-aggrandizing. I didn't invent this program. Sure. <laughs> this belongs to a person named William Pelham. Uh, Dr. Pelham is at Florida International University. 
I've known him for years, and uh, in fact, he used to be at the University of Buffalo, and that's how we started our program here. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, the STP came to Cleveland Clinic in 1999. Um, and you were saying the program itself is very effective. What is oh, going on with the summer program? <laughs> Tell me more. You are an excellent listener. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, you treat ADHD at the point of contact, and the most sophisticated program there is behaviorally for ADHD is the summer treatment program. We target, for example, 13 negative behaviors. We reduce their frequency during the day. And then we target nine positive behaviors, like um, uh, pro-social intervention or um, uh, cooperating with another person or responding to a directive. Um, these nine positive behaviors we increase. And then we also train parents to do exactly the same. So. Um, what's very interesting in our world today, especially for parents, is that you probably remember Hillary Clinton's um, venture into It Takes a Village way back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, our world has advanced to a place where the village, like most of us grew up in, where you'd run down the street and do something you weren't supposed to do, and the mom down the street called your mom and you got in trouble when you got home. Yeah. It's not there anymore. Right. There are no norms to behavior. And the village has actually, it's shrunk to a household. So behavior management has to occur in the household, but there's no consistency of it across households. Right. And parents are left with, not knowing what to do. Right. Right. What is appropriate behavior? So a tendency is to fall back on how my own parents raised me. I turned out okay. Now, sometimes that's a question, <laughs> but not to the person themselves. Right. Right. So you start using the things that worked at a different time in a different context with different people, right. and it doesn't work now. Yeah, got to customize it to our new lifestyle. Yes. Well, I'm going to say it in a, li a little more harsh way. Mm -hmm. We're going through life looking at a history rather than facing a future. Mm -hmm. We're looking at what's already been as opposed to what we're building. Right. It's a problem that occurs in almost every facet of life. Mm -hmm. It's a problem that occurs in relationships, for example. You know, my... Mom used to treat me like this. My wife should treat me like that too. Yeah. Or some version yeah. of this. Yeah. So it's like high expectation based on what we went through, based on memories versus how our life has changed. I wouldn't even call it high expectation. I would call it an expectation from our history, whatever that happens right. to be. Right. And you can see ramifications of that in all different kinds of um, family dysfunction. Sure, sure. Now I want to ask you about adult ADHD versus uh, children. Um, when an adult is diagnosed with ADHD, were they diagnosed as a child or were they just, did they kind of like miss out on that part of their life and weren't diagnosed and something new lifestyle changed them later on? Or how does um, adult ADHD usually get diagnosed? Adults with ADHD are generally referred to our lifespan clinic the ADHD Center for Evaluation and Treatment. Mm -hmm. Because somebody mentioned it to them, you know, you might have ADHD. Mm -hmm. Or they've had their child diagnosed with ADHD. Or they just have always known that something is off. Okay. I just had a young woman today, 21 years old, mm -hmm. absolutely clearly meets symptom criteria for ADHD combined presentation. Mm. And she described to me the things that she does. She described, for example, that she ditches her friends. She'll make an agreement to meet her friend at 4 o'clock, but then 4 o'clock in the afternoon comes, and what she really wants to do is to go for a hike in the woods by herself. Mm -hmm. 
so she doesn't show up. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, she has to go clean it up with her friend, but it happens again and again, and now her friends just say, oh, that's just Julia, mm -hmm. not her real name, by right, the way. Sure. Um, she has consistent difficulty with procrastination. The conversation that she has with herself is, I have two weeks to do this thing. <clears throat> I don't have to work on it today. I can, I got plenty of time to get it done later. Mm -hmm. That conversation rolls right up into the day before the assignment is oh, due. Yeah, yeah. And when she decides to do something, she described, for example, several different art projects that she really enjoys. And she'll start the thing. There will be a lot of enthusiasm at, at the beginning. But then when the project gets to be more of a task, mm -hmm. she, loses interest. she loses interest and doesn't initiate or put enough effort and energy to complete the thing. Mm -hmm. So with adults, I will tell you the primary difficulty. Adults lead lives of incompletions. Now, William James... Um, was is probably considered the father of Western psychology. He wrote in 1890, there is nothing so fatiguing as the eternal hanging on of an uncompleted task. Now, that is exactly one of the first things that I personally address with a person, an adult who comes in to see me. Sure. Um, and if you look at an uncompleted task as an agreement that's been broken, you can consider that the brain never forgets a broken agreement. Right. If I sat down with you and I said, what things have you gotten incomplete? You would tell me a few things. Mm -hmm. And they're incomplete because you said you were going to do them, and you didn't do them, mm -hmm. at least perhaps not to completion. Right. Now, what does it feel like when you have incompletions, when you have broken agreements? It's like wearing a backpack and you're constantly putting rocks in the backpack and weighing yourself down. Mm -hmm. Everybody has had the experience of saying they're going to do something. Students in college, for example. Mm -hmm. By agreement, they're in college to complete all of the work that they have to do. So... A paper is due on a particular day, on a Monday, and they haven't written it, and it's Sunday night. Mm -hmm. That feeling of incompletion, of breaking the implicit agreement that if you're in college, you're going to do the work, weighs on them. Mm -hmm. now, and everybody has had the experience of, I said I was going to do this, and I didn't do this. Right. The brain will never forget a broken agreement. I had a person come in uh, mid-40s. And we were talking about incompletions, and he said, you know, it strikes me that I promised my high school friends, three of them, that I was going to contact them after we graduated and went to college, and I never contacted them. He said, my brain reminds me of it all the time, and I keep saying I'm going to do it, and then I never do it. And if any individual looks to see what broken agreements there are, what things they haven't done. They've left incomplete. It's a burden. And what does it feel like when you finally do something that you've been putting off forever? Right. Right. Feels great, doesn't right. it? Of course. Okay. Great. I hope you don't get a lot of calls from college kids thinking they don't. They have ADHD because I feel like a lot of kids are, you know, pushing the assignments to the very last day or forget forgetting stuff. I'm just trying to see the line is thin between. When is it actually a problem versus, you know, just forgetfulness or pushing something back? Because so, we all experience that on a daily basis. A very useful observation. Mm -hmm. It's not that a person procrastinates and that makes ADHD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to have the symptoms, right. six of nine or five of nine of inattention, five of nine or six of nine for hyperactive impulsive behavior. Mm -hmm. And you have to have the conditions. Okay. The conditions have to have been around a long time. They need to be intrusive in more than one setting. Mm -hmm. okay. 
Now, you mentioned earlier um, parents could worry if their kids have it that they may have it. So is this a genetic uh, disorder? Professional thinking at present is that it is definitely a genetic condition. Okay. Way back in 2000, 2001, 2002, there were maybe four genes mm -hmm. that were associated with ADHD. Now I think there's over 29. I haven't cool. done a recent talk. So um, the difficulty of genomically identifying ADHD is pretty significant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Now, the symptoms of ADHD can make school, family, just like you said, relationships, everything very difficult. So how, how to cope? Because it sounds like something like an ADHD student that goes to a school where it's all about talking and learning and raising your hand and going into that box, and some people learn differently. How, what is the approach that you see fit for these students? So there was a major study that was conducted called the Multi-Treatment Assessment Study, or the Multimodal Treatment Group um, for ADHD. It was, it was started in 94, went to 96, and then um, uh, several hundred children participated in this study, and they've been collecting data on it ever since. So uh, what's fascinating is that from that study, we've gotten very clear notion that a combined approach of using pharmacotherapy and behavioral intervention is the best approach. Okay. Um, now, for very young children, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends using behavioral intervention first. In our own summer treatment program and in the other summer treatment programs in the United States and Japan, uh, investigations have, been, have indicated that you can use lower doses of medicine and you can use, uh, when you use very intensive behavioral intervention. Yeah. And when you use very intensive behavioral intervention first, you can, use, you can start with lower doses of medicine to have things be effective. Okay. Now, the real... I think the real issue is um, many people consider that ADHD is overdiagnosed. I thought that's where you were going in your question before about college students coming in and because they procrastinate, they think they got ADHD yeah. and they should have Adderall. Yeah. Well, so the truth of the matter is Adderall is not hard to get on a college campus. Sure. It is the most diverted drug that there is. Mm -hmm. You can typically buy a, a capsule of Adderall for $5 yeah. during midterms and finals, cost $20 wow. or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. So when you consider um, what makes ADHD, you have to do a thorough assessment. Mm -hmm. You may have seen the uh, study that just um, came out that described... <clears throat> younger children in kindergarten whose birthdays occurred just before Is it the school year? August 30th, August. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 31st. Mm -hmm. uh, compared to kids born after that date okay. tend to be diagnosed more with ADHD than their peers. The ones before school year. So... The ones before school okay. year got diagnosed more mm. than the ones after. Okay. Because if school is supposed to start on December 1st, mm. and you're born on, on September, excuse me, if school starts on September 1st, and you're born on September 2nd, then by the time you get around to school, you're going to be a whole year older than yeah. the one who's born on August 31st. Right, right. And the kids who were born in August, or August, before August 31st, just before the school year starts, more of them, 30%, more of them were diagnosed with ADHD. Now, automatically people are going to conclude, oh, we're over-diagnosing ADHD. The issue is not over-diagnosing. The issue is misdiagnosing. Mm -hmm. Anybody who knows child development is going to be crystal clear about whether or not a child is actually exhibiting symptoms of ADHD or whether this is a developmental issue. Sure. It's a long, it, this is a question that is consistent with exactly what you were bringing up before. Mm -hmm. College students who want an edge will go in and tell the therapist, I have this symptom and that symptom and that symptom. Yeah. It's up to the therapist to be able to tell 
the diagnostician to be able to tell, is this ADHD? Is this someone who wants to look like their ADHD? Mm. Is this somebody who's just anxious because they're studying a very difficult subject and they can't quite get it and so sure. they think they have ADHD? Sure, sure. And that's actually my next question was, how is it diagnosed? How, how, so when someone comes in asking for Adderall or Ritalin or whatever the treatment is, what, what kind of steps are taken to make sure that, you know, it is true ADHD versus just like you said, just trying to get, you know, the pills? Again, that, well, so I'm going to simplify it and turn it into a three-step process. Okay. And then I'm going to comment on the three-step process and how it's used. So the first step in diagnosing ADHD is to determine if the symptoms are there. Mm -hmm. So again, we're talking about nine symptoms of inattention. How many of them are there? Mm -hmm. Nine symptoms of hyperactive impulsive behavior. How many are there? So you have to determine if the symptoms are there. So what most people do is to use a rating scale like the Vanderbilt scale mm -hmm. or the ADHD rating scale. And I would ask a parent and I would ask a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I have two rating scales now. And then many times people stop there. So are the symptoms there? Yes, this one says yes, and this one says yes. High level of agreement between the two. But that's not enough. Mm -hmm. There's a second step, and the second step is, what can I rule out as the cause of these symptoms being there? Mm -hmm. Could it be the child is not getting enough sleep? Mm -hmm. Could it be that parents are really aberrant in how they're managing behavior in the household? Could it be that the child is depressed or anxious? What actually can I rule out as causes of these symptoms being present? That's the second step. Okay. Now, like I said, many times when professionals do diagnostics for ADHD, mm -hmm. they stop at the first step. And even that step, I mean, there are school districts in our country who would, some of them, count and make sure they have a lot of the symptoms of ADHD because it means they get more federal aid. Mm -hmm. Some school districts, because they have such an excellent, excellent record, don't want their kids to have be diagnosed ADHD, so they underplay mm. the symptoms. So um, the if, if, if ADHD is diagnosed, then a school has to provide accommodations for that child. And sometimes the school is so strapped for money that they do not have the capacity to provide it. Mm -hmm. So there's a subtle pressure not to diagnose ADHD. So you see, rating scales themselves may not, there may be other things that factor them. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that um, children who are in families whose parents are divorced. And the mom thinks ADHD is complete nonsense, but the dad is very clear that it's ADHD. So the mom fills out the rating scale and underplays underrepresents the symptoms, right. the dad may overrepresent, and the parents are at odds about it. So the first step is not enough. The second step to rule out other causes of which that might be a cause. Sure. And then there's a third step. The third step is to determine comorbidity. Is there something else occurring, co-occurring, mm. which is what comorbidity is, co-occurring with these symptoms and with ADHD? especially so in adults. Mm -hmm. um, this, it broke my heart the other day that this young man had a family, um, good job, very, very active. Mm -hmm. He felt all his life that he was stupid, very close to his family, very responsible for his family, but never felt like he could do anything else. Uh, he would look at his classmates when he was in school, 
he would see that they finished their tests sooner than he did. They got better grades than he did. They could recall the answers to things that just escaped him. Now, when that happens, he's not concluding to himself, oh, I know, it's that my network in my brain doesn't use directed attention very well, and I'm constantly in the phase of automatic attention, which is the default mode of the brain. That must be why this is all happening. The person doesn't say that. No. What do they conclude? Well, people are harsh on them. So just like you said, you would think, I'm stupid, I can't learn exactly as much the as point. others do. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, a person says, there's something wrong with me. Right. And um, this young woman that I just saw today before I came to talk with you, mm-hmm. um, cried when she says, I always thought I couldn't do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she realized that it had nothing to do with how bright she was or how bright she wasn't, how committed to her education she was or how committed she wasn't, she constantly referred to herself throughout our conversation as lazy. I finally corrected her or intruded on that conversation. I said to her, perhaps you're not lazy at all. She's not a lazy person at all, but she thinks she's lazy when what she's really doing She thinks she's lazy primarily because she procrastinates constantly and it's drawing her grade down. She's not doing her best work. She thinks she's lazy because she avoids things. Laziness is a state. You can look at somebody and say, oh, you're just lazy. Laziness is a state, a state, uh, a, a a characterization of a person, like personality or something. Mm-hmm. People with ADHD are almost never lazy. Almost never. I, first of all, I have never, ever met a lazy child. Never. <laughs> You've met them? Maybe a few. But uh, no. <laughs> You've not met them either. You probably They're have the met... the most energetic balls of fire. <laughs> you, well, you probably have met children who avoid things. Yes. What absolutely. do they avoid? Schoolwork. Yes. Why? Yes. Schoolwork is boring. Yes. Right. I had a little kid, for example, one of the most fascinating little kids I've ever met. Mm-hmm. On one Saturday, he organized five other kids in the neighborhood because on his street, they were building new houses. He organized five other kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They all went around, and they took wood, and they went back in the woods, and they built a tree for it. And they had it done by Sunday afternoon, and they played in the, in until wow. dinner time in it. And then he came in on Monday morning to school, and the teacher said, children, here's a worksheet. Start doing it right now. Everybody else did all 30 problems. He had two. Is that a lazy child? It's not a lazy child at all. It's a child who avoids the kinds of tasks that uh, are, in it, are, interesting. are characteristic of ADHD. And I think this is a good um, point to really give the nature of ADHD. You know, we think that we have one kind of attention. There's not one kind of attention. There may be three, but there's two definitely. So the kind of attention we use when we're really interested in something or watching a good movie or having a wonderful conversation with somebody or uh, reading a good book, that's the default mode of the brain. Mm -hmm. The default mode of the brain, if we're very lucky, um, is where we end up having our careers. The default mode hijacks attention for a person with ADHD. But there's a second kind of attention that we use to self-regulate. It's the kind of attention that we use our frontal cortex with language to self-regulate. So if you know you have to have a meeting in the A building at 4 o'clock, you'll be there at the A building at 4 o'clock whether you're hungry or whether you are having a great conversation or whatever you happen to be doing, you'll separate yourself from that and place yourself in the A building. A person with ADHD 
has difficulty with that kind of attention, which is called directed attention. And it has its own network of the brain, which is called the task mode. Primary neurotransmitters associated with the task mode are dopamine and norepinephrine. And that's what uh, pharmacotherapy addresses. Sure. Some people say there's even a third kind of attention, and the third kind of attention is um, an emotional regulator. Because there are some kids with ADHD who have real difficulty managing their feelings. But at any rate, there's at least two kinds of attention, sure. the default mode and the task mode. And the task mode is what's difficult for people with ADHD. Sure. That's why an adult who is in, a, in work that they love, primarily engage with default mode. Right, right. So let's talk about the causes, or what the causes may be for ADHD. Genetic. Genetic. It's all genetic? It's genetic. So I know, were you about to go to media? I'm just, I'm just wondering... <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's anything else. I mean, screens is just like you said, that's a, a completely different lifestyle that we have nowadays. We have, you know, our iPhones, our iPads, our TV, our GPS, or in the car. We have everything everywhere. Does that does technology, is, is it making it worse for our children? Is there anything else that's, that could be causing ADHD? Because it's, it's the worst that it's ever been, correct? I don't know that it's the worst that it's ever been. Mm -hmm. It's the worst that we've ever recognized it. Okay. So ADHD has been in the population since forever. Mm -hmm. There was a study by UC Irvine. Um, they followed uh, the genetic patterns of hunter-gatherer tribes going back 30,000 years, followed migration patterns to, into South America. It was a fascinating study. Mm -hmm. I couldn't comprehend it myself, how they did things. I yeah. understood the conclusions, but... Um, uh, the ADHD symptoms have been around for a long time, 30,000 years ago. Mm. I mean, some people make the case that it's, these are hunter genes. When we lived in hunter-gatherer tribes, the hunters were the ones who noticed everything, which is what the ADHD brain does. The brain, ADHD brain notices Observing. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, when you're over, if you're living in a dangerous world, you want to be around the guy who knows danger's that way, we got to head that way. So uh, some people make the case that uh, we're living in a world dominated by screens and that screens are making the attention span shorter. Now, there's no question that the expectations for some kind of reinforcement, some kind of change in the environment mm -hmm. is somewhat exacerbated by screens. Mm -hmm. But screens do not cause ADHD. ADHD is largely genetic. Okay. Now, um, screens certainly are impacting how children react to directed attention tasks. Because mm -hmm. if you have a worksheet in front of you with 30 math problems on it, that worksheet isn't doing anything. It's not changing. You have to bring your attention to that worksheet in order to interact with it. Right. You're the change agent for the worksheet. Right. If you're looking at a screen and the screen is um, having all kinds of action occurring in a war zone, yeah. the screen is changing and it's actually capturing our attention. So the real issue is not that it's changing attention, at least as far as we know now. There are no clear studies that confirm screens cause ADHD. That's a myth, okay. at least at present. Okay. It's that the brain and the person expect things to change. Mm. Now, children with ADHD tend to have, tend to require a bigger difference in their world to respond to it. So screens are perfect for that. And when the screen is not there and we're looking around the world to find something to do, kids are not looking to say, hey, let's go to the new houses, get some wood and go build a fort back in the woods. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is looking for the next game to play or the next very exciting situation, which requires, which, which actually... Um, 
attracts and draws and lights up their default mode and attention. Did I answer your question? Yes, I okay. did. Thank you. Okay, so now, uh, naturally, let's just go on to treatments. I know we talked about Adderall, Ritalin. Is that another one? Are, are there... So the two compounds are methylphenidate and amphetamine. Okay. Methylphenidate has a variety of different... There's about 29, maybe even over 30 different compounds or different delivery systems for methylphenidate and amphetamine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Methylphenidate works in one way in the synapses. Amphetamine works in three to four ways in the synapses. Um, and now I want you to be clear, I do not practice medicine. I don't give medical advice. Okay. So nobody can listen to this and say that I'm saying one thing or another about medicine. If you want medicine, you talk to your physician. Sure. Um, the stimulants are highly effective in managing the symptoms of ADHD. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they target... Dopamine and norepinephrine in the default, in, excuse me, in the task mode, the mode of directed attention. And remember, if you are going to self-regulate, you have to suppress the default mode. Mm -hmm. So the sunny day versus getting the taxes done. Mm -hmm. You have to suppress the sunny day, suppress wanting to engage with the sunny day and do the boring task of right. doing your taxes. Right. You do that through executive functions, and the stimulants enhance directed attention so you can self-regulate. Mm -hmm. The stimulants do nothing more than allow a person to do what they ordinarily would want to do. Okay. You can be as inattentive on stimulants as you are off stimulants. Right. So another thing that I've heard a lot from my own uh, friends or parents of kids maybe with ADHD or maybe need something like Adderall, you know, like the side effects with maybe sleep or appetite, something like that, do you think the benefits outweigh um, the side effects? You have just stated exactly what the question is when there are side effects. Mm -hmm. So three primary side effects of the stimulants. Appetite suppression, sleep delay, and irritability. Mm -hmm. There is what's called a rebound effect of the medicine, that when the medicine's wearing off at the end of the day, mm -hmm. people can become irritable more easily angered okay. or upset, um, more cry periods, uh, more easily agitated. Okay. Um, so the key question is, does the benefit of the medicine outweigh the side effect? So let's say a child has appetite suppression. So doesn't eat lunch. So the parents give a good breakfast in the morning, then give medicine. And the child doesn't eat lunch or doesn't eat much lunch. Lunch mm -hmm. Comes home at 3.30, doesn't get hungry until 6 o'clock. Well, have dinner at 6 o'clock right. and then give really good snacks. Um, then it's also useful um, to um, consider what are called structured treatment interruptions or colloquially called drug holidays. The uh, American Academy of Pediatrics does not recommend weekend drug holidays, but it, do, it, it does um, endorse longer times like Christmas break or, excuse me, winter break, mm -hmm. spring break, summer times, if there are side effects. So if the benefit of the medicine outweighs the side effect, then you manage the side effect. Okay. If it doesn't, then you either lower the dose or um, change the medicine. Yeah. How about sleep? Is there, is there something that then they can take for sleep if they're not sleeping well on the medication? So, again, uh, many physicians will recommend using melatonin. Okay. Uh, and melatonin can be very, very effective sure. for uh, assisting with sleep. Great. How about any uh, natural remedies? And when I say natural remedies, I'm talking about more mindfulness or meditation. Does any of that help with ADHD? Let me say this. There are a lot of products out on the market. Yeah. And these products, most of them, have not been demonstrated to be effective. There are three uh, alternative or integrated medicine um, treatments, mm -hmm. or I shouldn't even call them treatments. They're actually um, protocols or okay. methods. Um, 
three of them that have been demonstrated to be effective for ADHD. The first one is omega-3. So omega-3 is good for any of us, actually. Yes. And it has been demonstrated to have a very, very small effect on attention. So whereas stimulus may have this much effect, omega-3 has about okay. this much effect. Okay. You probably wouldn't even notice it, actually. Okay. Um, the second thing is mindfulness. So mindfulness is exploding. Mm -hmm. It's exploding in medicine, in in education, in business, in psychology. Mindfulness practice, which we use in our own summer treatment program, has been demonstrated actually to be effective for ADHD because it allows the person the moment of separation between responding to a default mode stimulus mm -hmm. event and redirecting attention to a task. Right. like the boring mass sheet. Right, right. The third thing is an, is a computer program um, called CogMed. CogMed has been demonstrated to be effective with working memory. Okay. We have um, CogMed available here in Cleveland. Oh, excellent. How about nutrition, since we're talking about omega-3? Um does poor nutrition or eating habits cause any uh, ADHD or at least contribute to it? You know, when I first started working in, in this area in the 1970s, there was a diet called the Feingold diet. Mm -hmm. The Feingold diet, I was at the University of Hawaii at the time, and the Feingold diet was this magical thing. It removed salicylates from food. So oranges have salicylates, processed food has salicylates, and um, the object was to remove those salicylates and supposedly hyperactivity disappeared. Um, there have been any number of studies with the Feingold diet and none of them, when done in a rigorous scientific design, mm -hmm. demonstrated effectiveness of the Feingold diet. Mm -hmm. That has been so to date with all of the other diets that have been investigated. So um, removing gluten, for example, for some people may be effective. Okay. Removing uh, food dyes for some people may be effective because some people have allergic reactions to these things. Sure, sure. I mean, green, red, and yellow food dye can actually generate hyperactivity in yeah. some people. Yeah. Not everybody. And you would know it because the child's behavior is going to become quite active after they ingest something. So there has been no other clearly studied diet that has impacted ADHD. Okay. Now, for example, the person that I saw today, she would get this feeling of being um, agitated and her... She, she said, my thoughts just would be going all over the place, much more so than it is when she would wake up in the morning, for example. Mm -hmm. That's typically a result of having directed attention getting depleted. Oh, and by the way, directed attention in a person with ADHD gets depleted far sooner than in a neurotypical individual. Okay. But she would describe that when this occurred for her, and she knew she couldn't study, she would go for a hike in the woods, and she would want to do it all alone. Because being in the woods somehow brought back her, her equanimity. Mm -hmm. And there are even some books that describe that um, being in nature and uh, doing something that doesn't elicit a lot of response in the brain. And when I even think back to, when you think to screens, um, some of us older folks probably remember Mr. Rogers. Remember Mr. Rogers? Yes. He'd walk gradually to another place, yeah. and he would say what he said. Yeah. Very present in the moment. Very present mm -hmm. and also slow moving. Yes. And kids were captivated yes. by him. Yes. Hello, little neighbor, and life would light up. Absolutely. Um, it's that slowing down of the um, of the response to the world around that 
has an effect on the brain. And that's what mindfulness practice does. Now, the biggest problem of mindfulness practice with people with ADHD is getting bored. I mean, that's the whole purpose of mindfulness is (laughs) to manage. To be bored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, it's to manage boredom. Boredom is nothing more than the same thing occurring in the brain as when thoughts are flowing through it. So the tolerance for boredom for a person with ADHD is a little more intense than for a neurotypical individual. However, mindfulness practice is uh, clearly um, a very useful strategy that any of us can practice. We use it in our own summer treatment program. That's excellent. So can you outgrow ADHD? Brilliant question, Nada. Truly brilliant. That's one of the things, the findings from the uh, multi-treatment assessment study. Mm-hmm. This may astound you, but a child who's been diagnosed with ADHD with intrusive symptoms, 49.9% of them will show intrusive symptoms as an adult. Mm-hmm. That means 50% of them don't. Wow. So do you outgrow ADHD? I don't know that that's a clinically relevant term, outgrowing it. Typically what people do is to grasp how their brain is actually working. And they put in place strategies that work for them. Like, it's, it's rather odd, but many adults with ADHD end up marrying someone who's very organized, Mm -hmm. or they end up working for an organization that's highly structured, or they end up doing something that's absolutely fascinating to them. So I have diagnosed uh, physicians at some of the best institutions Mm -hmm. in our country with ADHD, Mm -hmm. and yet they're some of the best doctors in the world, even surgeons. Mm -hmm. One of the capacities of these people is they can over-focus on something. Mm And their ability to notice everything makes them some of the best people around. But when they have to stop and do a directed attention task, as opposed to the default mode task of surgery, and they have to enter an electronic medical record, they have to have, they figure out, they have to have somebody accompanying them to get the thing done so they can get it done on time. Great. Now, how do medications actually work in the brain for ADHD patients? Many people have misconceptions about what these medicines do. Some people think they calm a child down. Some people think they um, dope the child up. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with that. If you consider that the network of the brain that is not as effective, it's not working as powerfully, Mm -hmm. called directed attention, or the task mode of the brain, neurotransmitters, dopamine, and norepinephrine, that that network, if it's strengthened, allows the person to put their attention where they want it to go, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the attention going where it wants to go. Controlling their attention. Yes, it it actually allows them to, to, to adapt their attention to the task. Mm -hmm. So that's all it does. It doesn't do anything else. It strengthens the directed attention needed to Mm self-regulate. So a child actually can do what they want to do. Sure. Okay, so we are running out of time. Um, But before I let you go, now I know you talked quite a bit about the nine symptoms for people to kind of notice when their children are going through maybe ADHD symptoms. Is there something so our, our, our listeners or viewers that you want to tell them? Are these symptoms, are, is it something that they can just Google and find out what these symptoms are if yes, they want they to are. check out? Okay. So just kind of look them up and just to find out in case it sounds like it could be someone they know or a yes. child that they know. You can go to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Mm-hmm. You can go to the CHAD website, C-H-A-D-D, Children and Adults with uh, ADHD. Okay. ADD. Um, and you can find the symptoms, you can find discussions of the treatment. The thing to watch out for there, there's so much disinformation out there. Right. And um, 
we, for example, here at Cleveland Clinic offer shared appointments. And in the shared appointments, we describe what ADHD actually is from the science of it. Okay, great. And um, you have to be very careful as to what you are going to believe. Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Well, my pleasure, Nada. Thank you <laughs> for inviting me. Sure I appreciate thing. the conversation. Thank you. You're a gracious host. <laughs> thank this. you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> and for more information or to make an appointment, call 216-444-5437 or visit clevelandclinicchildrens.org slash ADHD. And thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you want to hear more of our Health Essentials podcast from our Cleveland Clinic experts, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org org slash he podcast or you can subscribe on itunes thank you again we'll see you again next time this concludes this cleveland clinic health essentials podcast thank you for listening join us again soon